0: I looked at ASU's plan. I think it's a really good one. U of A's is too. It's a good plan. Just keep in mind that the fact that they're finding cases isn't a bad thing. It means that they're actually looking. What you don't want is to have the low numbers because you're not testing like the old Soviets used to do with stuff. You know, <laughs> right. if, nice. if you look, you should find them and
1: finding them is a good thing. You're making a great case for our saliva test. People can collect their saliva without having to have a stick in their nose. You don't need to have a trained medical personnel to collect the sample. It's just spit through a straw into a tube. We've done over 80,000 of those now. It works quite well. It's quantitative. It uses the same chemistry that the nasal swab does, but it's a lot safer and doesn't require medical personnel or nearly as much PPE.
2: That I know is what keeps me waking up every day and coming into the office is that nationally, Everyone recognizes the difference between public health and our hospital system and realizes both are extremely important and realizing that we need to be better prepared. We need to have an infrastructure that is in place that can scale up much quicker than we did with COVID-19.
3: The silver lining from COVID would be to realize, yes, actually, we are interconnected. Yes, actually, these communities do depend upon each other. We need to be more invested in the health and the wellness of the community around us rather than say, it's all fair, it's all good, good luck. Uh, So as an ER physician, you can't make enough of us, but you can invest in public health and you get an ROI that's pretty significant.
4: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Vitalist Spark Podcast. I'm your host, John Ford. When it comes to COVID-19, we could all use as much good news as we can get. And guess what? We got some on August 27th, when eight of Arizona's 15 counties moved to moderate spread status, while Greenlee County graduated to minimal spread. Since this is our first pandemic in over 100 years, it's good to know how to process this news, drawing from a breadth of expert perspective. That and more is what you'll hear in this episode of our COVID-19 Roundtable. We've got two brand new and intriguing guests that we're excited for you to meet, but before we do, remember that the spread got to these levels and can only aspire to stay at these levels if we are all COVID smart. Stay at home as much as you possibly can. Wash up, mask up, maintain physical distancing, and keep a heads up for your fellow Arizonans. If we want continued lower numbers two to four weeks from now, our actions today make that difference. All right, let's get to it. Only with a topic like COVID can you get health experts to combine schools and bars, policymaking and college partying, or even the airing of droplets and the airing of misinformation. But we've got all of that here today as we talk about what life with COVID-19 looks like as of September 1, 2020. And we've got a great crew for you today here at the beginning of September, starting off with Mr. Will Humble. Will, how are you today? Good afternoon. Also joining us today, Dr. Nick Vasquez. Nick, how are you?
3: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me.
4: One of our new guests, Dr. Joshua LaBert from Arizona State University. Josh, how are you?
1: I'm great. Thank you. Thanks for having me as well.
4: Thanks for being here. And then the head of Maricopa County Department of Public Health, Marcy Flanagan. Marcy, how are you doing?
2: Good. Thank you for having me.
4: Thank you for being here. Let's talk about the numbers. Where are we now? What do we know? We just had a milestone last week.
1: From my perspective, the numbers continue to improve in this state. The rate at which they're improving is slowing a little bit, but nonetheless, today's number is below 200. We're still a little bit above where we were when we opened up last time, but still it is continuing in the right direction. I tend to look at the seven-day trailing average of new cases, and that continues to improve in my view. And I think it's a testament to Arizonans' willingness to follow the guidelines. When I go out, I see people are still wearing masks, which is great. Uh, I think people understand the importance of physical distancing. I think people understand the importance of staying home when they don't need to be out. And I think all of those things are contributing to the generalized improvement. And so I'm hoping that that continues. Uh, And I think if you look at the hospital numbers, if you look at the ED numbers, if you look at the ICU numbers, those reflect what we see in the total number of new cases so i'm hoping that that we can keep people motivated for me that's the biggest thing how do we keep people motivated i
0: agree with everything you just
1: said dr laver here's
0: the thing i want to point out though is that we've just made some humongous policy changes in the last few days the bars and the nightclubs are now allowed to be open some of the k-12 schools are back in session but the big turning point here is that the bars and the nightclubs are back open. And so think about what happened on May 15th. We didn't see it on your data at ASU until May 26th. That's correct. It took 11 days for us to see an uptick in cases that reflects an incubation period and a little bit of testing delay. So while the numbers look good now, I don't think we can expect to see anything like a downward trend anymore because the policy changes They're fundamental. We know that these are super-spreading environments.
1: Certainly data from other parts of the country, when they've done contact tracing and looked at the trends, have shown that the bars are indeed the big super-spreader locations, much more so even than gyms, for example. All the ingredients are there at a bar. People are disinhibited by the alcohol. The whole point of the bar is to be social. People tend to be indoors, close in proximity. So you're right. Got to see what happens.
3: So can you help clarify something for me that may not be clarifiable? I'm a practicing emergency physician, and from the get-go, there's been a contingent of the medical community that is saying, this is airborne. But there's that whole part about the bar where it's noisy. You have to be close, and you have to speak loudly. Yeah. And and that seems to promote this minor aerosol formation, which increases the likelihood of transmission.
1: Well, published studies that show that we produce 2,600 droplets per second when we talk in normal speech per second. And that's not speaking loudly. That's not trying to talk over music. So we are surrounded by a cloud of our moisture when we speak. There is no doubt in my mind that speech is the way this virus transmits from person to person much more than, for example, coughing or sneezing and all that stuff that we worried about at the beginning. I think it's normal speech that does it.
4: Well, you kind of skipped over the whole reason bars are open now. So we now moved into a new category of moderate spread, and that does shift the policy lever. That's correct. So given all the things we've talked about on this podcast over weeks and weeks and weeks since March, this is the gating criteria that this state has. It makes sense to do this, yes or no?
0: Yeah, I don't object to opening the bars. I think from the very beginning... Our objective was to keep our hospital capacity so that the people who did get sick would have the ability to get care. We wanted to save as many lives as we could. And yet we've asked certain businesses to shut down for a long, long time. So I don't object to allowing this to happen. What I strenuously have objected to over the last 10 days, allowing this to happen without a compliance and enforcement system in place. And for many, many days, It was clear that the bars and nightclubs were going to open, and I never heard anything from the state to suggest that there was going to be a compliance or enforcement provision in place, which was freaking me out. We did the honor system in May, and we did the honor system in June, and it was a train wreck. One of the journalists before those press conferences gives me a call and says, what should I ask about this week? And this was like three weeks ago, and I said, ask about the fact that the bars and nightclubs are opening around the corner. Ask him What's the enforcement plan? I'm talking about the governor. And he didn't answer the question. So that was a signal to me that that discussion hadn't happened in the back rooms about the compliance and enforcement. I'm pleased. I don't want to be a Debbie Downer here. I'm pleased that they do have a hotline. That's the other thing I was pressing for is you got to have a hotline. It can't be if we become aware of your non-compliance, you're in trouble. You've got to have active surveillance for who's cheating on this. And now they have it. And there's been a couple of enforcement actions. My understanding is there's a three or four bars that have had their liquor licenses suspended. What I hope happens is that this is a broad-based, long-term compliance and enforcement system. It can't be, let's do a few high-profile suspensions and hope that that does it. It's gonna have to be like what we do in the restaurants. You'd send health inspectors in. I know that's Maricopa Environmental Services. You inspect everybody.
1: You have to know what everyone is doing. The other half of this, I hope, is that in addition to enforcement for the restaurants is just that the patrons also have an awareness of their own responsibility in this. I'm hoping that Arizonans have learned something over the summer and that people who go to businesses know that wearing masks is helped and, and, and there are survey data to show that people are more supportive of wearing masks. Certainly, that's my observation. I was shocked at the beginning of summer to walk into Target and see nobody wearing masks. And now that's not true. Most people do it.
4: Here's the thing we hear, though. It's really hard to drink a beer when you're wearing a mask. It's really hard to eat food when you're wearing a mask. And so (laughs) when we go back to the idea of bars reopening, it becomes another normative spot. I think people understand when you go shopping, you got to wear a mask. But people still quite haven't figured out, because they haven't had the practice, what happens when you walk into a bar.
3: For me, the concern or the question I have isn't whether or not people have learned. Come June, I think our entire public learned, okay, this isn't just going to go away. We need to adapt. I can see the argument for opening up a school because of the public benefit for educating kids in the long run and in the short run. It's a harder ask for me to open up the bars. I understand the employment. I understand the economic benefit there but it's a harder ask, and it's one of those things that is a dilemma. You're gonna get something, it's gonna cost you something. I wonder if we're ready to shut things back down again if we get to a place where the data starts to look bad, because once you give people the, sure, go back, it's hard to tell them, okay, wait, it's raining, everybody back inside now.
0: This is a really important point, which is that the bars and the nightclubs and the K-12 system are interconnected because by making a policy choice about allowing bars and nightclubs to open, very likely we're going to stop our progress in terms of the decrease in the cases. It's going to plateau or go up. And so if it does, we may never get to a hospital capacity issue, but we might very well get to the point where the K-12 kids and their parents miss out on in-person instruction opportunity because the bars and nightclubs were open. I know you can't have it both ways if there's not real compliance. If this is a kind of press release type compliance, then it's not gonna work and K-12 is gonna be over online.
4: Marcy, all these changes are starting to come. We have major universities back on campus. We have reached a spot where schools are going to start reopening. We have bars and restaurants reopening overseeing the health of the most populous county in the state, are you concerned that things are going to go crazy again? And if so, where do you start?
2: I think that public health, for the past 10 months or so that we've been dealing with this, it's been something new for all of us that we haven't seen in most of our lifetimes, the biggest fear that we have is exactly what we're talking about right now is it's all happening at the same time. If this were to be that school wasn't starting for another few months, and the bars and things were starting to slowly open, and we had a little bit of time, but with it all happening at the same time, that is the fear. And it's the question of, does everybody realize that there has to be that turnoff valve, that there has to be triggers at which we can't get to back to where we were with 3,000 cases a day. That's just too much to allow our teachers and our students to be in classrooms together. And we know that's not ideal for learning, especially you think about, I have niece and nephew that are both in elementary school and trying to teach a second grader, a first grader online you know they're not getting the same quality of education they would when they're in the classroom with their teacher it's just the reality of the situation so as will pointed out the most important thing is for everyone to remember that following the mandates that are in place means that our kids are going to get to go back to school and be in classrooms and if our numbers start to shoot up we need to be ready to buckle back down and turn that off switch back on again and not have the congregating happening you know in bars i think there's many that have tried to be good players and And part of the solution and really have their bartenders and their staff and everyone wearing masks and then compliance. And then unfortunately you see what happens. We allow places to open and you have some bad players that go right back to allowing lots of people sitting around the bar with nobody wearing masks, staff not wearing masks. So that's going to be an issue, but I am happy to see as Will pointed out that the liquor board was willing to come in and do some enforcement actions on those bad players.
4: From a county perspective, with all these different places reopening, what is the partnership? What is the alliance of groups that's going to make it possible to provide some oversight?
2: it's definitely going to be a partnership with any of the agencies, probably more at a statewide level that hold some sort of enforcement authority over these areas. So when you talk about a restaurant or bar, if they have a liquor license, it's going to be the liquor board. When you talk about establishment that serves food, it's going to be your county local health department or environmental services department that license that establishment. So it's going to be all of the players that are part of licensing any of these establishments and whatever licenses they may hold Old that are going to have some enforcement capability. When it comes to our partnerships with them, it really is providing the guidance and recommendations. We had several owners reach out to us and ask us, how do I safely open? What do I do about menus? What do I do about staff when they're sick? And those are all great ways for public health to be able to weigh in and give some recommendations. When the schools were starting to have discussions about bringing students back in the classrooms, we started a work group here in Maricopa County. We had about fifteen participants from school superintendents to a couple ASU partners and lots of people having discussions of what sort of decisions our school board's going to be faced with and what kind of information do they need to make the best decisions possible.
4: One of the things, Marcy, that's been talked about quite a bit is how low does the new case rate have to be in order to reopen? The corollary question that I don't think we've heard the answer to is how high do cases need to get before we have to pull back? Has that been discussed at the county level? And if so, what thoughts does the county have related to that?
2: If you're talking about the schools and and businesses, there are some metrics out there at the the state. You're going to see a little bit different across the country, I think that's part of the problem with COVID. If it were a magic number we all had, it'd be easy. Part of it is seeing how your community, how dense it is, what your population looks like. What we're seeing here in Maricopa County is going to be different than what they're seeing in Navajo County or Apache County or or anywhere else. So it really is looking at your community. I think that's why it's important that our dashboard, we now have information with case rates, uh, percent positivity. The metrics that are being used for the schools broken down by not only zip code, city, but also school district, and it's really to look at those numbers and make the decisions. I think that we can all say, when it comes to percent positivity, when we get to a point, especially when we're in the double digits, 10%, that is not a good time to be allowing businesses to open and things to quote, be going back to normal. When really we know World Health Organization, CDC, everybody says three to 5% positivity is where you can say that you've kind of got things under control. And we haven't hit that yet in Arizona. So it really is right now, I think still finding that balancing act of what is safe to start letting some things open, but what also is To cautiously start to open things.
4: Josh, a compacted group within a compacted county, Arizona State University. 176 cases was the first number that we got after initially the university was not going to report cases publicly. Within a matter of just a few days, that number almost tripled. Yeah. How do you feel about what's going on on ASU's campus in spite of an overwhelming amount of mitigation efforts?
1: We're dealing with our 18 to 21 year olds. Who are college students. It is very challenging for them, particularly because the vast majority of them are asymptomatic, for them to adhere to these guidelines that are sort of preventing the socializing that college students do. We're building the plane as we're flying it. <laughs> this is not something that any of us has ever faced before. We are day-to-day trying to sort out how to manage the process. We'll see. Part of what we're going to have to struggle with is trying to be creative about how we can let these kids socialize in a safe manner. Can we get them to do things outdoors, spaced more appropriately? I mean, right now, if they do socialize, they may be doing it inside, trying to convince them not to go to these houses off campus, into basements and having parties and that sort of thing, because it's exactly what we don't want them to do. It's a challenge, I and mean, there's no question about it.
0: I looked at ASU's plan, I think it's a really good one. U of A's is too, it's a good plan. Just keep in mind that the fact that they're finding cases isn't a bad thing, it means no. that they're actually looking. What you don't want is to have the low numbers because you're not testing, like the old Soviets used to do with stuff. You know, <laughs> right. if right. you look, you should find them, and finding them is a good thing. What I'm concerned about is How do you manage the off-campus stuff? Those apartment complexes in downtown, all that stuff around ASU, that is where the action is, and it's going to leak into campus.
1: ASU is doing surveillance testing or monitoring testing of all of its students, not just the on-campus students. I would argue, and we also provide testing for public sites, including the Tempe Diablo Stadium, people from the public can go get tested for free, paid for, thank you, from the state. I can't emphasize enough how important I think testing is. I personally think that testing is not just diagnostic, but it's also an intervention. When people learn of positivity, we get the results out in 48 hours. So when they learn they're positive, we can get them isolated, which is what I think contributes to the low RT value that the state has right now, largely because of all the testing we're doing. And I'm hoping that the bars will take this up as well, that there's some way that we can get them to do more testing, even if it's to get devices that do instant testing, something like that.
4: I've got a junior at ASU, and let me tell you, he ran the gauntlet just to get on campus, and I was blown away when we moved him in. One person per elevator. Elevator buttons had decontamination strips of some sorts on them, something that looked impressive. And he's already been tested twice for COVID since he got on campus.
1: I have a son here too, he's been tested
3: twice. Two difficult questions. Question number one, why are we having in-person college at all? Tell me what the benefit is for 18 to 20 year olds to be in-person when you can do it online. But the benefit for physically being on campus versus the risk is I don't get. And the second question I have, why are we using scarce testing resources on 18 to 21 year olds? You're having a struggle to get people in a nursing home tested, when you're having a struggle to get people in a meatpacking plant tested, when you're having a struggle to get people in a memory care tested. I work in an emergency department, none of us are being tested regularly, and I'm not saying that I'm the one you should be testing, but I'm saying that if there's scarce resources, this is a misapplication for people who are low risk for mortality, maybe higher risk for spread, but you could mitigate that by not having them on campus, period.
0: Are the resources really that scarce now? I mean, I know they were for a long, long time. I don't think they're that scarce. I think there's a policy decision that hasn't been made to require staff at nursing home to get tested once a week. And they have the regulatory authority that Department of Health Services holds those licenses. They
1: regulate them. Is it really that scarce? We have public testing sites all around the valley and now around the state. And we are not anywhere near capacity. We could sample 2,000 people, sample 2,000 people at State Farm Stadium or Tempe Diablo Stadium, and we fill less than a quarter of that now. People aren't coming to get tested. The way they were back in July and earlier in August. So there's plenty of capacity that people are not using for sure. And Uh, there's plenty of regulatory authority that hasn't been used
0: as well. We have the ability to compel assisted living and skilled nursing facilities as a matter of keeping your license in good standing to test their staff once a week.
2: We haven't used that regulatory authority. This is a state thing. CMS is now requiring all of the CMS licensed facilities to test on a weekly basis. The problem is they don't have enough staff to administer or collect the samples to do the testing. The new state guidelines just came out on Friday For long term care facilities to allow visitation to come back into them. And there is a testing component. We're hearing from those facilities that that's great if they get a machine, but who do they have on staff to collect samples and run those tests? And then also, it comes with just an initial supply of test kits. But then how do they reorder them? How do they get more? Those are the things that we're dealing with right now and trying to figure out with these partners. This is the
3: problem we've had since March. You've got a kit. You want to do your kit. You need that swab. You need a testing kit. You need someone to collect it. They need to be in full PPE because they might get exposed to droplets. You have a limitation on the number of swabs, a limitation on the number of kits, a limitation on the the number of people actually trained to collect that swab. It's got to get back in there right next to the brain. It can't just be a nasal swab. And then on top of that, you just don't have as much PPE as you'd like.
1: You're making a great case for our saliva test. People can collect their saliva without having to have a stick in their nose. You don't need to have a trained medical personnel to collect the sample. People can go sit down quietly or in the privacy of their car just spit through a straw into a tube. So we've done, I think, over 80,000 of those now. It works quite well. It's quantitative. and It uses the same chemistry that the nasal swab does, but it's a lot safer and doesn't require medical personnel or nearly as much PPE.
4: Faster turnaround as well, right?
1: In our case, we get it back in less than 48 hours. I keep going back to assisted living and skilled nursing.
0: So, Marcy, that's a good thing that's the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services. They're requiring some testing, but there's other nursing homes where CMS is not the pair. And so therefore, there is no regulations in place, which there could be. The authority exists. The governor could do it with an executive order. And then there's assisted living, which is also bearing a heavy mortality toll. Assisted living is private pay. CMS is not paying the bills on those things. And so therefore, it's not required at assisted living. There's way more people in assisted living than skilled nursing. And by the way, the acuity of patients in assisted living is you would think you're in skilled nursing in a lot of places when you're really in assisted living. We are missing out on an opportunity to use regulatory authority to compel testing within assisted living and skilled nursing, and it still isn't happening. And there's CARES Act money that could pay for it if they're going to say we can't afford it. Let's look at the constellation of what's going on. If we're going to care about mortality and hospital capacity, let's target our market. Our target market is assisted living and skilled nursing We have the tools available if we were willing to use them, the regulatory tools, to require that kind of testing in those places.
4: Josh, a lot of significant events happened in your neck of the woods since March, not the least of which the creation of a collaborative model that would project how cases might play out in Arizona. Talk about how that project started, who the collaborators were, how that project almost stopped, and what that project has led to in terms of its capacity to project where we would be at this time.
1: Well, you see, you're talking about our our modeling team. It includes Esma Gell, Anna Muldoon, Tim Lant, Heather Ross, and Megan Jen. That group of scientists and doctors are phenomenal, and I want to thank them all for their help. They are sort of our mathematical modeling team. They've been engaged in looking at the data that have been provided to them by the Arizona Department of Health Services and built mathematical models to look at what is the transmission here within the state and what the likelihood was. And quite honestly, their models have held up very well. I mean, we're quite proud of their models. In fact, I was just talking to the team now, and the model that they built more than a month ago is still holding up, and certainly the model held up well over the summer as well. We hope that it helps the state and others to be aware of what the likelihood was. You know, the model detected the rise that became the surge in June. We saw that coming in early May, even parts of late April. There were hints of it there. I think there's definitely a value to having lots of people and lots of brains working on these sorts of activities to make sure that we know what's coming and we have ideas of what to prepare for.
0: That modeling team gave us results that had it been used to drive public policy would have saved lives. And you look back at what happened, that April report showed these are five different scenarios, five different policy decisions that the governor can make. And if you do one, this is what happens. Two, this is what happens. Three, four, five. And they chose scenario two, which is to come out on May 15th with essentially the honor system and allow everything to open. And that was scenario two. And the Biodesign Institute's modeling report, you can go back and look at it. When you look at the X's on the chart, which is the actual real data that did happen, and you match it up with scenario two, which is the ending the stay at home order without a compliance or enforcement system, you see the exponential growth that we all observed and lived through, at least some of us lived through it in May and in June and in July. That work they did, it's remarkable. The correlation is uncanny. What has showed me is the real value of talented people putting together predictive models is profoundly valuable in a pandemic for policymakers.
1: They are phenomenal, they are uh, outstanding and a huge resource for our university. President Crow relies on them regularly. I mean, they are a fantastic team and very dedicated. I mean, they worked tirelessly to to build their models and refine their models and they continue to do so. They're, They're outstanding.
0: To me, it was a real watershed moment when I went back and looked at the real time data for what actually happened and compared it to their work at the very beginning. And it showed you that predictive modeling Would have been so valuable had it been used for policy decisions. The
4: financial guys will be the first to tell you that past performance is not indicative of future results. But models get smarter with more data. This begs the question, with what's happening right now as we are starting to reopen bars, as we have students on campus at college, and as we have students coming back to campus K-12, through what does the model say will happen?
1: There's no easy way to adjust your model based on a policy decision. What the modeling does is it looks at where the data have been and where they're headed. We're going to have to watch. Now, I will say this. One of the things that we observed when the ordinance went into place to add mask wearing, the governor kind of changed tune at the end of the surge. Within a week, the data showed a significant drop in transmission, almost in half, based on the model that our team looked at. Those sorts of policies made a huge difference. Now, what the new policies will do is hard to say because the model doesn't necessarily track specific things like opening of bars, but we will be obviously watching the numbers. And if the transmission rate starts to go up again, we should keep our eye on that.
4: Marcy, there's no difference for the virus as to whether it's March or September. And Will has repeatedly said on this podcast that this virus, one thing it does do is it responds to policy. What would your wish list look like on a policy basis for this fall and this winter?
2: My wish list would look like a statewide mask mandate. It was rolled out kind of piecemeal. And so you had local jurisdictions do different things. So something statewide would really be ideal, education and enforcement around the areas that are being opened back up again, then policies and trigger points for when those would have to shut back down, when it would be necessary to say, okay, we need to pull back and no more bars open or any of the other sort of activities that are spreading this virus.
4: There's been a lot of discussion on this podcast about how local the decision making should be. From your perspective in Maricopa County, how local should it be? How place-based should it be? How density-oriented should it be? Or is it just too chaotic to do that?
2: For certain decisions, there's some local information that's helpful. When you're talking about certain elementary schools or school districts and knowing where students are traveling from, what their school setup looks like, if there's the ability to cohort students in that school, if it's just a small school, a large school... I think that kind of local data is helpful for decision making. But when you're looking at the overall rates of positivity and infection, I think it's important to look at overall state and what's happening and to have some policies that are statewide are really important. I think you're going to get it from both spectrums. You're going to get some local areas that want to have the local control because they would have nothing in place. And then you have others that want local control because they would want to control everything. There's a balance and, and I don't know that any of us are going to say we got it right until this is all over and we can look at how every state handled it and kind of say that state probably got it right. This is where we could have improved. This is where we probably made some bad decisions.
4: So Marcy, you've been in public health in Arizona for over 23 years. If there could be any silver lining that comes from this experience and what we have been through as a state, do you think one of them might be more attention to funding for county public health departments? Is that going to happen?
2: I hope so. If there is a silver lining, that I know is what keeps me waking up every day and coming into the office is that nationally Everyone recognizes the difference between public health and our hospital system and realizes both are extremely important and realizing that this is not the last pandemic that's going to hit and we need to have an infrastructure that is in place that can scale up much quicker than we did with COVID-19.
4: Nick, as a emergency room physician, would you want more money for hospitals or more money for public health?
3: Oh, public health. I can take care of a diabetic foot cellulitis all day long. I'd rather prevent the diabetes. I can resuscitate a heart attack all day long. I'd rather prevent the heart attack. We know this through our vitalist work that really health is more a product of the environment that you grew up in. We have woefully underfunded public health. Many of the places that have political power don't have to deal with the chronic diseases that the communities that don't have political power do. COVID has highlighted what we've seen for the last 40 years with public health, which was, hey, this community over here isn't doing as well. The silver lining from COVID would be to realize, yes, actually, we are interconnected. Yes, actually, these communities do depend upon each other. We need to be more invested in the health and the wellness of the community around us rather than say, it's all fair, it's all good, good luck. Uh, So as an ER physician, you can't make enough of us but you can invest in public health and you get an ROI that's pretty significant.
4: As we're speaking, the notifications are coming across the screen saying that the governor's about to hold a press conference and it's about to be about the flu, not about COVID. What does that tell us about the importance of public health at this time?
2: It tells us that you're going to see a lot of that, not only at the state level, the national level, you're going to see it from us at the local level of how important this flu season is going to be to get as many people vaccinated as possible. Certainly, I think what Nick spoke about, I couldn't agree more that it is all interrelated. And part of our job in public health is to make sure we don't overwhelm our emergency departments with COVID and flu individuals. And if we don't get enough people in our community vaccinated with the flu, that's exactly what could potentially happen. We could be gearing up for the perfect storm, opening up all these places, bringing schools back in and flu season on top of COVID. So it's going to be more important than ever this year that individuals go out and get their flu shot. And we're putting lots of resources towards that effort, working with a lot of partners. And I think that's what you're going to hear the governor. I think that's what he's talking about today.
4: If you had a magic wand and you could use it to help us get through the next three months of this pandemic, what would you use it on? I'll start with Nick.
3: I would fix the problem of identity on the internet. Our ability to trust the information that's coming across through the channels that we listen to, which is the internet, has been eroded significantly because you have no idea who it is you're listening to or where the information is coming from. For example, half of Twitter is bots. And there are a lot of bots out there going, hi, I'm a nurse, I've treated people and oh my God, this COVID's not bad at all. There's misinformation campaigns all the time because we have indulged lack of identity on the internet. If I had a magic wand, bing, I would say, hi, I'm a bot. Hi, I'm a person. And then people could choose for themselves. Literally, I have had friends of mine, families of mine present to me information that turned out to be fake. It's not about how much education you have makes you vulnerable or invulnerable to this misinformation. It's that we're all vulnerable to it.
4: Josh, Nick's wand goes, bing! I don't know what your wand sounds like, but if you could wave it, what would you use it on for the next three months? Well,
1: I mean, I think it's it's certainly related, which would be that I would love instant awareness among the public on the importance of the epidemic, on the importance of, behaviors we need to abide by, including mask wearing, spacing, getting tested on a regular basis if you're exposed in any way. All of the things we know have worked because we know they work. They clearly work. The misinformation has led to misunderstanding. The wand would correct you.
4: Marcy, your wand comes with extra funding for public health. How would you waive it over the next three months to prevent... This pandemic from getting worse?
2: Well, unfortunately, all the funding in the world isn't going to get individuals to just go to trusted resources for information. So that's the down part. I think, similar to what Josh and Nick have shared, part of that would be individuals understanding the real numbers and pandemic and where we're at and what everyone's part can do. We're in this until we really have a vaccine. And I think that's hard for people to hear and understand. We've heard good news with herd immunity. That we can maybe reach it not at the 80%, which we typically like to see for a vaccine, but around 40% has had some really good results. So I think that's awesome news. But we're in this until we reach some sort of immunity in our community. And that's going to mean there's a few more months of wearing masks and social distancing and being responsible. So my magic wand would get all the public to understand that and be good partners and players for all of us.
4: Will Humble? We're less than 90 days out from an election. You've been very vocal about how our local elected leaders need to be prepared for moments like this. How would you use your magic wand?
0: So fortunately, Josh used the magic wand to prep the electorate because he said they would instantly understand epidemiology and public health. And now I have an informed electorate with my wand. And so now I can do what you just said, which is, to get turnout so that people understand the consequences. But I wanna use my wand on the vaccine to make sure that the phase three trials are followed through like they're supposed to be, to make sure that the Moderna, the Pfizer, the AstraZeneca, they stay intact through phase three, that the data is reviewed by objective scientists who can understand the nuances of identifying adverse effects and the effectiveness of the vaccine, and that the vaccines go through the FDA approval process and not end up being on an emergency use authorization basis. My concern is that one of these vaccines will be given EUA approval when phase three is only partially finished, and it will either not work or not be as effective as it could or should be, or has adverse effects. And if that happens, then we've undermined for a decade the public's confidence in vaccines. And I think that would be a big mistake. And I hope that doesn't happen.
4: Thank you, Will. Thank you, Nick. And thank you to our newest guests, Marcy and Josh. We appreciate all four of you for your work, your thinking, and sharing your perspectives. More than that, here's hoping that each of your magic wand wishes comes true. Got your takeaways from this episode? Number one, be careful with your information sources. COVID 19 isn't just viral in real life, it's also viral online. Number two, remember that all of our neighborhoods and communities are connected. Public health matters. One very big reason why COVID 19 has been so challenging in the U.S. is because we were not prepared, and that was because we stopped investing in public health. Number three, be aware that there are things you are tempted to worry about that are out of your control yet what's actually needed is to stick with what is in your control, and that is staying COVID smart. A, get your flu shot, now, because the combined effect of the flu and COVID could be significant. B, wash up, mask up, physically distance whenever you can, and keep a heads up for each other out there. Double points for masking up, by the way. It can help prevent COVID and the flu from spreading. Remember, we're in a marathon, not a sprint. By being in this together, we'll get out of this together. Our COVID-19 roundtable will be back in two weeks, but the podcast itself will be back next week with yet another conversation on health and well-being in Arizona. In the meantime, don't hesitate to delve into our back catalog of episodes. We had a great conversation last week about health data challenges, but we again ask you to listen to and share episode number 41, our Census 2020 update. We only have a handful of weeks before the census count deadline of September 30th, and Arizona simply cannot afford to be undercounted like it was in 2010. One or two new congressional seats depend on an accurate count, as do billions of federal dollars over the coming decade. Check in with friends, family, and acquaintances. Help get everyone living in Arizona counted. Beyond that, we've got a terrific and insightful LGBTQ communities conversation that you've got to hear. And as one of our hottest summers continues, we've got a great two-part series on heat and climate change, plus episodes on food, affordable housing, first responders, and the art and practice of storytelling. In other words, the Vitalist Spark has got you covered with great guests, insightful content, and probably one or two bad jokes. There's so much more to explore related to community health and well-being among our nearly 45 episodes so far, including guests from across the state and national experts too. Visit us on the web at vitalisthealth.org podcast. Check out all of our current and past episodes on Spotify, or simply reach into that podcast app you're using right now and select another show to find out what's going on related to health and well-being in Arizona. That's it for this episode. The takeaways from this dialogue belong at the family dinner table as much as they do in your place of business, in city and town halls, and in the domains of healthcare and public health. So please, share this independent episode far and wide. Subscribe to the Vitalist Spark podcast to get notified as soon as new episodes are released. Or listen to the Vitalist Spark just like you listen to your favorite music on Spotify. Give us your feedback wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can give us your input the old-fashioned way. Your corrections, complaints, and compliments, they're all welcomed by emailing us at feedback at vitalisthealth.org. Finally, remember this. With great responsibility comes great power. We'll see you back on the road to well-being soon.